Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past to the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories where history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Hunting History Podcast. This is Kat, your host, and joining me is my co-host, my partner in crime, my sidekick in all things I do, the girl with a face that can stop traffic <laughs> and actually has stopped traffic before. When? What do you mean when? You don't remember stopping traffic with your face? <laughs> No, you really did. She really did. She was in traffic on the 91 freeway and a group. Oh, that was years ago. Still the same face. Well. A boy got out of his car and came, walked back to her car to give her a note and tell her how pretty she was. That happened. Miss Haley. Hello. (laughs) You let me tell that story. I thought you were going to stop me. You need to take that out. Whatever. Your face stopped traffic, Haley. Too bad that does nothing for me now. Well, it does nothing for you on a podcast either because no one can see your face. You're right. So we've been talking about this a couple of weeks that we were going to do a story on Lizzie Borden. As you heard before we started talking, the uh, jump rope song for Lizzie Borden. And I had planned on doing it a couple of weeks ago, but the story is so big and there's so much information. It was It took me a lot longer to do all the research. And I should say before, when we do episodes, I mean, there are episodes that are obviously easier because there's tons of information. But what I try and do for every episode is I typically read a book on the subject or I've had read a book on the subject. I do research online. I do research on ancestry.com. I, I kind of lost myself. Um, p- part of the reason this one took so long too is because I was spending so much time on ancestry.com and find a grave and find my past and all those things. So I, I spent a ton of time researching this one. So I, again, I read a book, I do research online and I do ancestry, find a grave, I do all those. And then I also try and watch a documentary on it so that if there's anything that I miss, little nuances that I've missed. So this one took me a really, really long time. And because of that, it's going to be three different episodes. The first episode is going to be about Lizzie and the investigation, we're touching on the investigation and the murder, of course. And then the second part is going to be her trial. And then the third part is going to be the aftermath. What what do you know about the Lizzie Borden story? I know that it was a daughter that supposedly killed her mom and dad with an axe, but she says she didn't do it, and that's about all I know. That's it? Yeah. That's all. Uh, Lizzie, I'm going to tell you a lot more about Lizzie Borden and what actually transpired. And then um, I'm going to, I really want people's opinions about whether they think that she did it or not. There's so much information. And again, it's like one of those crimes from the 1800s that part of the biggest problem is that the investigation portion of it, they just didn't do a really good job of it. And this, this is not one of those crimes that's ever, which makes me sad because I love crimes that can be solved by DNA. This is not one of them, obviously, but it's still, it's, it's 
one of the oldest unsolved murders ever. Elizabeth Borden was born on July 19th, 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts. And I'm going to stop there really quick. Wouldn't you live in a place called Fall River? Like, doesn't it sound beautiful? Yeah, but you've always been weird about stuff like that. Like, you want to live places that sound cool. Well, and <laughs> like, I doubt... without any actual information, like Fallbrook over yeah. in California. Yeah. You think that sounds so great. I do. And I don't... And I'm really worried about street names, too. Yeah. Like, I would never live on Main Street or First Street or... Too basic. Yeah. Wait. <laughs> I hate that phrase. <laughs> I know, but it's so true. I don't... I want to live on streets with pretty names. Um, she was born to Sarah and Andrew Borden. Sarah Borden, her mother, uh, she died when Lizzie was just two and a half years old, like three years later, on March 26, 1863. So when they say that she killed her parents, it was her stepmom, not her real mom. Her mom died of uterine congestion and spinal disease at the age of 39. I did read somewhere, though, um, that Andrew, it, it'll come up during this this episode, that Andrew Borden was a dour man, which is basically for you. I know you just made that wrinkly face. You don't know what dour means. No. <laughs> dour is, it's the same thing as being sour. He was just very stoic, but in very, like, matter of fact, he mm-hmm. wasn't super friendly. And they talk about it often that he was a businessman, and he wasn't, but he wasn't a friendly man. He wasn't kind and nice. He didn't smile at people. And apparently he wasn't always like that. The information that I found was that when he married Lizzie's mom, Sarah, he they were madly in love. He was a very happy man. And I think a couple things attributed to the fact that he wasn't he wasn't he was dour and, and sad. And I want to say that I do know in one in my last episode that I said attributed wrong. I like said it like attributed or something. <laughs> Like, and I didn't catch it until the editing. Like, I don't, I don't know what I, I, I always pronounce Miss, Miss Podcaster, but I do pronounce words incorrectly, but I typically catch myself and I didn't in the last episode. So back to the story. He, he wasn't very well liked, but when he married Sarah's mother, I guess a, there's a whole different view of him from when he first met Lizzie's mom, Sarah. He was, they, they got married on Christmas day in 1845. He was just 23. She was 22. They were happy. He was happy. They were madly in love. They went on to have three daughters, which pe- most people don't know. People think that the only um, two were Lizzie and her sister Emma, her sister older sister. But there was actually another sister who who was born between Lizzie and Emma, and her name was Alice Esther Borden. She was born in May of eighteen fifty six, but died shortly after her first birthday in May of eighteen forty eight, and she died the. I found it on Ancestry.com. She died of dropsy of the brain. What was it? Dropsy of the brain. What is that? It's a swelling. Well, it's now, I think in 1858, they called it dropsy of the brain. They called a lot of things dropsy. Anything that was fluid retention. So now it would be called hydrocephalus, which is basically fluid on the brain. She was born with fluid on the brain. So she died. She was only like a year and a half. So I think those kind of things contributed to the man that Andrew Borden became. He was madly in love with his wife. She ended up dying. Well, first he lost his one of his daughters, and then his wife ended up dying. So in all the descriptions of Andrew, they talk about how he was just like not friendly, not kind. And I think there are things that contributed to that. Losing his daughter and his life was probably change a man. Andrew Borden re- married, remarried. A little over two and a half years later after his wife had died to Abby Durfee Gray. They had met at church and Abby was 37 
And it's not likely it was a match of love. She was 37, so she was quite well into her spinster age. She was described as being dowdy and full-bodied was the phrase I read. And I, I think that Andrew was really just, he had two and a half year old or five year old, five or six year old uh, Lizzie. And then uh, Emma would have been, I think she was 10 years older. So she would have been turning into like a teenager. So I, he married Abby probably more than likely as a mom to his daughters. He needed someone to help him with his daughters. I had read that he was looking for a mom for his daughters and poor dowdy spinster Abby fit the bill. The family lived well. Technically, Andrew Borden was successful enough to support his wife and his two daughters and to have a servant. He was one of the leading citizens of Fall River and the, the Borden family had strong roots in the community and had been among the most influential citizens of the region for decades. At the age of 70, Mr. Borden was certainly one of the richest men in the city. Although much to his daughter's dismay, he didn't really live like it. He was rather frugal is the word that they use most to describe him. He was director of the board on he was director on the board of several banks and a commercial landlord, and I believe a a, a residential landlord. He had considerable holdings. He was tall and thin, and while he was known for his thrift, he was admired for his business abilities. He was not very well known for his humor and he was not particularly likable. They they say now that comparable financially from 1892 to current day, he was worth probably about $10 million. Wow. So he's very wealthy. Their home was located at 232 2nd Street. Isn't that funny? I just said that. I didn't, I wouldn't live on a street, like second, like 1st Street, 2nd Street. Mm-hmm. Um, they lived at 232nd Street in the city of Fall River, Massachusetts. It was not really the home of a successful m- man, they were um, there was much more influential influential areas for the Bordens to live, which they called it like the hill or something where the nicer houses were. It, but Andrew wouldn't hear of moving. Their home was two point five stories tall, was like two and a half stories. Didn't have any running water or a bathroom, which really kind of sets this. Wasn't normal for the time. No, mm. not for wealthy and affluent people. Okay. They had an outhouse and slop pails in their ba- in their bedrooms. They the upstairs didn't have it wasn't set up like a normal house it didn't have hallways like the front stairs and i'll put a diagram of their house on our episode page but when you went up the front stairs it was just uh the door to lizzie's room and the door to the guest room that's it and then to get to the parents bedroom or to emma's bedroom you would have to go through lizzie's room to get to the other bedrooms and then the back stairs only went to the parents bedroom and then if you wanted to go up the back stairs to get to Lizzie or Emma's, Emma's bedroom, you would have to go through Lizzie's bedroom. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't set up. It just, it wasn't, I guess the point is it wasn't an opulent house. It wasn't super, it was functional, but not nice. It was located in an unfashionable part of town, but it was close to where he had all his business. Both daughters felt that the house was beneath their station in life. And begged their father to move, but he just wouldn't even consider it. In spite of this, in his conservative daily life, he he was at times considered to be moderately generous with both his daughters. At one point, even gifting a European trip to Lizzie for her thirtieth birthday to go to Europe. They some things I read though though, there's conflicting reports about her trip. Some say that she ran out of money and asked her father to send her money to get home. And he refused because he felt like he had given her enough money for the trip. And she had to wait until her sister Emma scraped up enough money for her to get home. In other um, things I read, they said that he was 
ridiculously generous and gave her a beautiful trip. Mm -hmm. She spent two months in Europe traveling all over. The home that they lived in was not a happy one. Andrew was grumpy and difficult, and the girls had a strained relationship with their stepmom. The relationship between the Borden sisters and Abby Borden was not a close one. When Lizzie was a young girl, when Andrew first married Abby, she did call her mother as her father instructed, but as she grew older, she and Emma began to greet her only as Mrs. Borden. So she's walking around her house talking to her stepmom and calling her Mrs. Borden. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine? You can kind of get a picture of what the house was like. It probably was not a friendly happy I mean, clearly it was not a friendly, happy house. Yeah. I guess the girls always worried as they got older that uh, Abby Borden, like her family, sought to gain access to Andrew's money. I mean, he was 70. The The life expectancy in 1892 wasn't much more than 70 for a man. Yeah. So I think as the girls got older, they realized how much money their dad was worth. And they felt that Abby and her family would somehow try and gain access to his millions Mm -hmm. emma was very protective of her younger sister and together the two sisters helped to manage rental properties owned by andrew borden they didn't technically work outside the house obviously in that time day and age but they did uh, help their father with some of the rental properties the sisters found out at one point that andrew had gifted one of his properties a house to abby's half-sister she rented the house from them it was one of his residential holdings and at one point, for some reason, he gifted her the house. He gave her the house. And the Borden girls were not happy about that. It went over like a lead balloon. They um, insisted that their dad give them something of equal value. So they en- he ended up giving them uh, their grandfather's house that he owned. And then they rented it out for a while and collected the rents on it for income for themselves. And then eventually they sold it back to him and he bought it back to them at a profit so they made money off the house he sold them and then he bought back from them some kind of weird business deal yeah the a family attended the congressional church the congressionalist church and it was it, it was a place that lizzie was very very involved in she was she taught sunday school there the girls seemed to be well liked in the community both girls had an orthodox and religious upbringing and regularly attended the central congregational church Lizzie taught Sunday school, and as young women, they were involved in um, all kinds of church activities. She was actively involved in Christian organizations like the Christian Endeavor Society and the Women's Christian Temperance Union. People who knew her described her as outgoing, someone who would speak her mind. But the thing is, is both of the girls were considered spinsters by the time the murder happened. Lizzie was 32, and Emma was in her 40s. So... The thing, people try and theorize why they weren't married. In the 1890s, 22 was the average age for, well, the 1800s. 22 was the average age that a girl would be married. And there's several theories why the girls never married. Some think it was because the girls were expected to have a dowry. You know what a dowry is? No. You don't have any idea what a dowry is? You've never heard that before? It has nothing to do with money. Well, or like a um, trust fund or something? It's property or money that... Uh, a bride, a bride brings to the marriage. Okay. When a husband talks to the father to marry his daughter, it it it's sort of like a gift to them. Like it's what she brings to the marriage. And some people think that Andrew was too cheap and frugal to have a dowry for both his girls. But he was also in everything I've read about him. 
yes, he was frugal. He wouldn't buy a bigger house. He wouldn't buy a nicer house because it was functional. But he would have followed convention, if that makes sense. Like, if the girls needed to have a dowry, they would most definitely have a dowry. Yeah. He wouldn't... That wouldn't be something he would... I mean, I'm sure he would be frugal about it, but he, it's not something he would deny mm-hmm. because that was conventional and he seems like a traditional and conventional man. So that's not what... I don't believe that. Others say that they were too shielded to meet eligible men. And then um, others think, and I think this is probably for certain with Emma because Emma would have been born around uh, the eighteen, the 1840s, early 1850s. And I can look up exactly when she was born and I'll have it on our website. But she would have been affected by the Civil War, by there being a shortage of men after the Civil War for her to get married. Because she would have been of marrying age, uh, probably about 1865, 1868 would have been normal for her to be getting married. And men were off fighting wars and men did not come back from the Civil War. So she would have had less opportunity for single eligible men to marry. Mm -hmm. As far as Lizzie goes, though, Lizzie was younger. So I don't know that the Civil War would have necessarily affected her getting married but she went to europe when she went to europe and when she turned 30 she went with a group of four or five other women who were also single women around her age too so it just wasn't in for whatever reason within their community or their lifestyle there were quite a few single women and you'll hear the story of one of their closest friends she was also that age and single so i the theories don't make sense to me other than maybe they would have been more shielded and not really given chances to meet eligible men. Lizzie Borden was just another gal from Fall River, Massachusetts. She was nothing significant about her other than she probably did speak her mind more. She was somewhat educated and her father was very smart and she probably learned a lot from him. So other than that, she's just a normal girl that lived 32 year old girl that lived in Fall River, Fall River, Massachusetts. But then on the morning of August 4th, 1892, everything changed. That day that made her famous and infamous, depending on what you believe happened that morning. The first person awake, and I'm going to tell you the story of the murder of Andrew and Abby Borden. I said the date was August 4th, 1892. The first person awake in the house that morning was Bridget Sullivan. She was their maid. Bridget was a respectable Irish girl who Emma and Lizzie both called Maggie. And there are also conflicting reports about her why they called her Maggie. Her name was Bridget. It's nothing close to Maggie. The girl, the servant that worked for them before her name was Maggie. So some people say that they were just, they accidentally called her Maggie one day and it stuck. And mm-hmm. um, cause they had been so used to calling their old man Maggie. Um, other people say that they, it was rude that they were making a point. Like you're, that's how I would see it. That you're just a housekeeper. We're just going to call you. Yeah. Maggie. Bratty kids. Basically. But they were in their 30s. They were not kids. Yeah, but how they acted. To Mrs. Borden? That and then that they lived below their like standards. Like they just seemed like they were just spoiled kids. Pissed off all the time. Yeah. Other people say they called her Maggie as an endearment. That they loved their old housekeeper. And when she came, they were like, you're just like Maggie. We love originally call you Maggie. So it's hard to say what the reason was that they called her that. At the time of the murders, Bridget was 26 years old and had been in the Borden household since 1889. There's nothing that anyone can really say about her. She had come to America from Ireland in 1886. She 
didn't at the night of the murders, she didn't stay in the house that night following the murder. But she did come back on Friday night and on Saturday she left the house never to return. Like she didn't stick around with the family or with Lizzie afterwards. Bridget said that she came downstairs from the attic around six AM to build a fire in the kitchen and begin cooking breakfast. The night before John Morse, his name is John Morse, the brother of Sarah Andrews' first wife had shown up, so he was still close to his first wife's family, had shown up saying that he had family in the area to see and business to discuss with Andrew. So he just showed up their house the night before to stay there. And that becomes a contention later on. But if something had come up where he had to see like a sixth family member or something, they didn't have telephones back then. So, and writing a letter could have taken two to two weeks to a month to get to someone. So I don't know that it's that unusual that he just showed up. Because had he written a letter, it would have gotten there far after he had to arrive anyways. So the fact that he just showed up isn't really that big of a deal, but it does come into play later on. Yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Borden came down to eat, and they lingered in conversation with John Morse around the table for nearly an hour. Lizzie had slept in and was late for the meal. She didn't join them eating. Emma happened to have left town to go visit a friend, and so she wasn't even there. So... The only people in the house are Bridget, John Morse, Abby Andrew Borden, and Lizzie Borden. At a little before eight, John Morse left the house to go. He said to go and visit a niece and a nephew. Borden locked the screen door after him. So the thing is, it was peculiar in the house that they always kept the doors locked. Always, always. And we talk about that in the Velisca Ask Murders and the Sauter family. And people just didn't lock their doors back then. Yeah. The Borden family always, always locked their doors. Just what they did. The inside, from the inside and from the outside. So John Morse left. Andrew locked the screen door behind him as he left. It was um, minutes after Morse left that Lizzie came downstairs, but said that she wasn't hungry. She decided to have coffee and a cookie, but nothing else. It's possible that she had a touch of the stomach flu that was going around the house. Apparently, Bridget told them later that she had felt the need to go outside and throw up sometime after breakfast that morning, too. And two days before that, Mr. and Mrs. Borden had been ill during the night and had both vomited several times. So they kind of think... They, they originally had discussed that it was a poison mm-hmm. or even just f- like intentional poisoning or just food poisoning or it was, to me, it sounds like a flu went Stomach through the bug. house. Yeah. yeah. At quarter past nine, Andrew Borden left the house and went downtown. Abby Borden went upstairs to make the bed in the guest room that John Morse had stayed in. She had asked Bridget to wash the windows. Now, there's a little bit of contention about this too. It was really hot. It was August 4th. And it was really, really oppressively hot during that time. And they said it wasn't really an Abby thing to do to ask Bridget to go outside and wash windows when it was that incredibly hot. And then other people say she was just a taskmaster and taskmaster and would have, you know, the windows need to be washed. Too bad it's just how it's hot outside. Either way, she asked Bridget to wash the windows. It comes up later that that seemed weird. At 9.30, she came back downstairs um, saying that she needed pillowcases and Bridget, so Bridget was still in the house. Bridget went about her daily chores and started the window washing. And when she went to wash the windows outside, she went to the barn to get water and pails. She said that she also stopped for a few minutes to talk over the feds with the girl that worked next door, which is significant time-wise. So this is around 9.30. She finished outside the windows at about 10.30 and then started washing the inside of the windows. 15 minutes later, after she had come in the house, She didn't have any direct contact with Abby other than when Abby told her to start washing the windows. When she came back in to wash the inside of the window, she didn't see Abby again. Mr. Borden came home 
like I said, about 15 minutes later after she had come in the house. And she opened the interior locks for him. Lizzie came downstairs. She told her father that Mrs. Borden had gone out. She had a note from someone who was sick. Mr. Borden took the key off of the shelf for his bedroom and went up the back stairs. This is the other thing I wanted to mention. They were very particular about locking the house from the Like, you can't get in from the outside. It was locked from the inside and the outside all the time. They also all locked their bedroom doors. And the reason for that was that in 1891, just a couple years before the murders, someone had stolen jewelry and money from Andrew and Abby's bedroom. And Andrew had locks installed on all the doors. But he weirdly always left the key on the parlor shelf. So he installed locks so no one could get in the room but left the key... Available for anybody to open the door. Right. Some people believe that it wasn't a robbery, that it was Lizzie who did it. That Lizzie went into her parents' room and stole the money and the jewelry. And that the reason he left the key where he did was sort of testing her. Like, here, you can do it again. Mm -hmm. No one else would know where this key is, but you know where it is. So let's see what you do with it. Right. As far as I know, it never happened again. Andrew had taken his key and went upstairs to his bedroom, but he'd only stayed up there a few minutes. And significantly, he went up the back stairs. And like I told you earlier about the way the layout of the house was, the back stairs only led to his bedroom. And then through his bedroom, you could get to Lizzie and Emma in the guest room, but the doors were locked. He couldn't get into Libby's or Lizzie's room. He couldn't get into Lizzie's room. So he went upstairs, spent a few minutes, came back downstairs. When he came back downstairs, Lizzie's, well, from Lizzie's account of what happened, when he came back downstairs, Lizzie had begun to set up, um, to heat up an iron. She was going to press some handkerchiefs. So she was in the kitchen, uh, and then Maggie was in the kitchen with her when Mr. Borden came downstairs. In her the story, the version she tells, she said that she asked Bridget, are you going out this afternoon, Maggie? There's a cheap sale of dress goods at Sargent's this afternoon at eight cents a yard. And Maggie said, replied that she was not going to, that the heat of the morning combined with the window washing and the fact that she believed that she had some kind of stomach flu left her feeling poorly. So she went up the back stairs to get to her attic room for a nap. So the back stairs led to the Borden's bedroom and the attic. The front stairs led to Abby and then through, or I'm sorry, the front stairs led to Lizzie's room, which you could access the guest room and Emma's room. So she went up that back stairs to her attic room to take a nap. And she says it was just a few minutes before 11 when she did this. So she's been in the house from 1030 to 11, only like 30 minutes. The next thing she knows is she was laying down and she heard screaming. And it was Lizzie shouting, Maggie, come down. And Bridget said her, she opened her eyes because she had actually drifted off to sleep. And the urgency of Lizzie's cries startled her awake. She, What's the matter, matter, she said. She smoothed out her dress, slipped on her shoes, and scurried out the doorway. As her feet tapped down the staircase, she was horrified by what she heard next. Come down quick, Lizzie wailed. Father's dead. Somebody's come in and killed him. As Bridget hurried down the staircase, she found Lizzie standing by the back door, and she described her as pale and taunt. She stopped the um, the maid from going into the sitting room because it was Bridget's first thought was like, if he's dead, and like I should go to where he is. Mm-hmm. And Lizzie stopped him and said, don't go in there. Go and get the doctor. So she sent Bridget running across the street to Dr. Bowen, 
who was also a family friend, and he lived across the street from the Bordens. And the when she got there, she found out that the doctor wasn't there. And but Bridget told Mrs. Bowen that Mr. Borden had been killed. And then she ran back to the house and asked the first thing she asked Lizzie when she came back is where where were you when this happened? So Bridget's just confused. She had washed windows outside, come inside, washed the inside windows, and then was briefly chatting with Lizzie. And the next thing she knows, she's asleep and getting called down because mm-hmm. her boss is dead in the parlor in the living room. She asked Lizzie where she was when it was like, it was the first chance she had tried to talk to Lizzie when she first yelled for her to come downstairs. And when she went to go look at Mr. Borden and Lizzie had stopped her and sent her to go get Dr. Bowen. So when she came back from trying to get the doctor, she asked Lizzie, where were you when this happened? And Lizzie told her I was out in the yard. I had heard a groan and came in. The screen door was wide open, which that confused Bridget right away too, because the doors were always locked. Like when everyone came in or out, the door would be locked behind you. Um, the neighbors were starting to gather because Bridget was so hysterical and Lizzie had yelled. The neighbors were starting to gather on the lawn and someone called the police. The next door neighbor and her name comes up again was Adelaide Churchill. She came over to Lizzie and for her testimony, she said that she had looked at her back door and seen Lizzie and said, is everything okay? And Lizzie said, no, Mrs. Churchill, someone has killed father. So Mrs. Churchill, now this is all from her testimony, said, where's your father? Lizzie answered, in the sitting room. And Mrs. Churchill asked, well, where were you when it happened? And Lizzie said, I went to the barn to get a piece of iron. And then Mrs. Churchill said, well, where's your mother? And Lizzie said she didn't know. And that Abby Borden, her stepmother, had received a note asking for her to respond to someone who was sick. But then she added something weird. Her, this is what Mrs. Churchill says. Lizzie added, but I don't know but that she is killed too, for I thought I had heard her come in. So I don't know why she would offer that information, like assuming that she was dead too. That seems a weird thing to say. Yeah, if right before that she had said that she saw a note that said she was going to be out. And then, yeah, but hey, maybe she's back because I thought I heard her. Yeah. Seems like a weird thing to say. Then she added, father must have an enemy for we have all been sick and we think the milk has been poisoned. So it was a topic the stomach flu that was the wolf for calling the stomach flu in the meantime lizzie sent bridget back out again to try and get her friend alice russell to come back to the house that was one of her best friends and by the time that dr bone got there bridget had returned from telling mrs russell or miss russell is one of her young spinster friends miss russell of the of what had happened dr bone examined the body and asked for a sheet to cover it so during this whole time no one's found abby no one's found Abby yet. Dr. Bowen said that Borden had been attacked with a sharp object, probably an axe, and so much damage had been done to his head and face that Bowen, a close friend, could not at first positively identify him. That's how badly mangled his face was. Borden's head had been slight, turned slightly to the right, and 11 blows had gashed his face. In fact, one eye had been cut in half and his nose had been severed. The majority of the blows had been struck within the area that extended from the eyes and nose to the ears. Blood was still seeping from the wounds that had been slashed and and had been slashed onto the wall above the sofa, the floor, and a picture hanging on the wall. It looked as though Borden had been attacked from someone above and behind him as he slept. 
Several minutes passed before anyone thought of going upstairs to see if Abby Borden did in fact come home. And it was Lizzie's idea. Lizzie told Maggie, I am almost positive I heard her coming in. Go upstairs and see. Well, Bridget refused to go upstairs by herself. So the neighbor, next door neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, said that she would go with her. Uh, They went up the staircase together, but Mrs. Churchill was the first to see Abby lying on the floor of the guest room. And like I said, when you went up the stairs, there was a door to... It wasn't a hallway. It was just a door to Lizzie's room and then a door to the guest room. And I guess the guest room door was open. So as they were coming up the stairs before they even got all the way up there, Mrs. Churchill was eye level with the floor in the guest room. And she could see from there the body. So she saw what appeared to be Abby laying on the floor in the guest room. And a neighbor, I guess a neighborhood was in the house and said, Is there another? And uh, Mrs. Churchill replied, yes, she's up there. Dr. Bowen found that Mrs. Borden had been struck more than a dozen times from the back. The autopsy later revealed that she had been hit by 19 blows to the head, with most likely the same hatchet that had killed Mr. Borden. The blood on Mrs. Borden's body was dark and congealed, leading them to believe that she had been killed before her husband. Dr. Bowen was heavily involved in the activities at the Borden house on the day of the murder. He was the first to examine the bodies. He sent a telegram to Emma, the sister, asking her to come home. He assisted Dr. Dolan when he got there with the autopsies, and he prescribed a calming tranquilizer for Lizzie, which people have said was morphine, that he was giving her, doping her with morphine to mm-hmm. keep her calm. Yeah. I, keep her calm or keep her sleepy? I don't know. Same thing. He was a consistent present in the house, presence. He was a consistent presence in the house and his involvement, especially on that day, has led um, people to consider him a major figure in some of the conspiracy theories. No one even called. So it was at 11 when Lizzie was screaming for Maggie and at 11, it wasn't until 1115 that someone called the police. The problem with the police that day is it also happened to be the annual picnic for the police department. So they were basically operating on a skeleton staff. Mm-hmm. Anybody who could go went to the picnic. So the only officer that was dispatched to the house was Officer George Allen. He ran 400 yards to the house, saw the Andrew Borden's body, and ran back to the new station to, to the station house to inform the city marshal. He left no one in charge of the crime scene, and while he was gone... The neighbors all started traipsing in, comforting Lizzie and peering in at the gruesome sight of Andrew's body. The constant traffic trampled and destroyed any clues that could be left behind. During the 30 minutes or so that the authorities were on the scene, the county medical examiner, um, Dr. Dolan, passed by the house by chance. He looked in and was pressed into service by Dr. Bowen. So basically, Dr. Bowen grabbed anybody he could to help him with... I mean, he was the the doctor for the medical examiner but still he pulled him in and asked him to take over and they examined the bodies as well he examined the bodies as well and after hearing that the family had been sick and the milk was suspected he took samples of it later that afternoon he had the bodies photographed and then removed and then he removed the stomachs and sent them along with the milk to the harvard medical school for analysis now for no poison was found by the way they didn't find anything in their stomach or in the milk and I believe that he did the autopsies on the kitchen dining room table. Ew. Right? Because I think the bodies went from the house to the funeral home. 
I don't think there was any in between to like being buried. So the murder investigation that followed was chaotic to say the the least. The police were reluctant to suspect Lizzie of murder based solely on the fact of what her station in life was and the fact that she was a woman. Not that she couldn't have done it or wasn't capable of it or wasn't given the opportunity to commit the crime. They just chose not to believe it was her at first because she was a female. Yeah. I mean, we know now females can commit just as heinous crimes as men can. I mean, right? It's just not as often. Yeah, but I feel like back then everything had a place. Everyone had a place and... Everyone was in a box. Yeah, they say that um, they were reluctant to suspect Lizzie because of the perceived social understanding of that of that era that a woman could not possibly have committed such a crime. No, a woman is a caretaker and she's dainty. She right. can't kill someone with an axe. Yeah, so they the the first couple of days when it's the most what's that show called? First forty eight. That's the most. Um, first forty eight. They say it's the most crucial. Yeah. So in the case. For that first 48 hours, they were struggling to pinpoint it to Lizzie. So as much as the stuff that comes out later does come out, it, I, they still in their mind would have been fighting it because it wasn't proper back then. For I mean, it, it was never proper, but like it's, it's not any more proper now to kill people. <laughs> it just, it wasn't really proper to like even question her for it. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't what was expected. No. And so even though her and Maggie were the ones that were in the house, that they would have been the prime suspects right away. I think that during the investigation, the, the police struggled with that thought and probably didn't investigate the way that they should have. If that makes sense. Yeah. A profusion of the clues were discovered over the next few days. All of them went no more nowhere. A boy reported seeing a man jump over the back fence of the Borden property. And while a man was found matching the description, which I think he was an immigrant, he had an alibi. A bloody hatchet was found on the Sylvia farm in southwest or south Somerset. But that proved to be covered in chicken blood. It wasn't real blood or people blood. And while Bridget was a suspect for a short time, the investigation finally began to center just on Lizzie. A circumstantial, case, a circumstantial case began to be developed against her with no incriminating physical evidence like bloody clothes or a real motive for the killings or even a convincing demonstration of how and when she committed the murders. Over the course of several weeks, investigators managed to compile a sequence of events and cast suspicion on Lizzie Borden. The timeline ran from August 3rd, to the day, which was the day before the murders, to August 7th. And that was the day that um, Alice Russell saw something that caused um, her testimony to be the deciding factor. On August 3rd, the day before the murders, there were several incidents that police believe related to the murders that occurred on Wednesday. The first was in the early morning hours when Abby went across the street to Dr. Borden's and told him that she and her husband had been violently ill through the night. He told her that he didn't think the vomiting was serious and sent her home. Later, he stopped by to check on Andrew, who apparently, this is how grumpy Andrew was. He told him rather snarkily that he was not ill and that he would not pay for an unsolicited business call for the doctor. The doctor was just calling to check on because they were neighbors. Yeah. There would be no evidence of poisoning found in any of the 
board and autopsies are the things that they sent away. Another incident took place where Lizzie tried to buy, supposedly, tried to buy 10 cents worth of Prusik acid from Smith's drugstore. She explained to him that the reason she wanted the poison was to clean her mink cape and that um, the poison would kill any moths that were in the cape. It's Sorry, it wasn't mink. It was seal skin. But he refused to sell it to her without a prescription, but that comes into play in the trial. A third incident was the arrival of John Morse in the early afternoon. He showed up without luggage, even though he intended to spend the night. He just showed up without any luggage, which I think is really weird. Leslie and he both testified that they did not see each other until after the murders, although Lizzie knew that he was there. Finally, that evening, Lizzie visited her friend Alice Russell, the one that Bridget went to get, mm-hmm. and she told Alice Russell a few really weird things. She said that Lizzie was agitated and worried over a threat to her father and that she was concerned something was about to happen. That's all she kept saying. Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. And she said, I feel as if something were hanging over me and I can't throw it off. So Lizzie was telling Alice. She added that her father was had many enemies and that she was frightened that someone was going to happen. Something was going to happen to the family. One day after the murders, there were several parts of the story that didn't make sense to the investigators. Abby was killed, according to the autopsy, around 930 in the morning. The killer, if anyone but Lizzie or Bridget, would have had to conceal themselves or herself somewhere upstairs and wait an hour and a half for Andrew to kill him too. Abby's time of death also posed other problems for the investigators. According to Lizzie, she had gone out, but obviously she hadn't. The note that Lizzie claims that she saw saying that Abby was supposed to call on someone who was ill has never been found. Yeah. Lizzie said that she burned it. She just saw it and threw it in the trash because she assumed Abby wasn't there. She must have went there and she was straightening up and maybe she threw the piece of paper away. It's just kind of coincidental that... She's the one saying she's gone, then she's the one saying that she's back. Yeah. Kind of thing. When Andrew Borden returned to his house, Bridget had let him in at the screen door, was fascinated on the inside, finding out the screen door was fascinated on the inside with three locks. This would have been um, made it extremely difficult for the killer to get inside, too, if the doors are always locked, right? I would think so, yeah. There was only a small window of opportunity would have existed while Bridget was um, getting the pail and water from the barn and talking to the neighbor. That's really the only window someone would have had to get into the house undetected because the door wasn't locked. But then they would have to have been hiding somewhere right. in the house during the other interactions. Right. Bridget later testified that while she was unlocking the door for Mr. Borden, she had heard Lizzie laugh, Lizzie's laugh coming from upstairs. However, Lizzie swore that she'd been in the kitchen when her father came home. And she insists that she saw her father retrieve the key to his bedroom from the shelf and go to his room. So who opened the door? We don't know if Lizzie did or the laugh bothers me. The fact that Bridget swears that she heard Lizzie upstairs laughing, which might lead you to believe that she, someone else was in the house helping her. Like her laugh was to somebody else. But if to go off by, Abby being killed so much ahead of Andrew, wouldn't Bridget slash Maggie have heard her get killed? Like, I don't understand. Maggie was outside when she got, Maggie was outside washing the windows when Abby was killed. 
She was probably on the other side of the house washing the parlor windows. Abby was on the other side of the house in the bedroom making the guest bed. So then somebody killed her and then... Hid somewhere. And then Maggie was done. She came in and then right after Andrew came home. She went upstairs to lay down. And someone killed Andrew Borden. Couldn't Lizzie have been the one that killed Abby? Like, didn't necessarily have to be somebody else, right? Right. The, but there are problems with that. That's what we're going to get to. On the afternoon of the murder, an officer asked Lizzie if she, if there were any hatchets in the house. And she told Bridget to show them where they could be found. Four of them were discovered in the basement, including one with dried blood and hair on it, but it was they figured out later it was from a cow. Another of the hatchets was rusted, and the others were covered with dust. But one of them, the one without the handle, looked like it had been washed and dipped in ashes. And then the broken part was dipped in ashes. It didn't look like it was naturally, like it naturally got ashes on it. As Sergeant Harrington and another officer asked Lizzie where she had been that morning, and she said she'd been in the barn looking for an iron for fishing sinkers that they had planned on going fishing. And the two men examined the barn and found the loft floor to be thick with sawdust, and um, there was no evidence anybody had been in there because it didn't just get covered in dust again. Deputy Marshal John Fleet questioned Lizzie and asked her who may have committed the murders other than an unknown man with whom her father had gotten into an argument with a few weeks ago. She said she had heard her dad get into an argument with someone. Um, When she was asked directly if Uncle John Morse or Bridget could have killed her father, she said no. She said no. She was defending them. Mm -hmm. Morse had left the house before nine, and Bridget was sleeping when Andrew had been killed. But she pointedly reminded Fleet that um, it's really funny when, when Marshal John Fleet said like well who do you think if you think someone was mad at your dad who do you think do you think that person would have been mad at your mom too and um very indignantly lizzie answered she's not my mother that's my stepmother and so that bothered the investigating officers because they said she was very stoic Mm -hmm. and answered questions like at one point they said well we're we'll talk to you tomorrow. We'll ask you more questions tomorrow. You're clearly not, clearly this isn't a good time to ask you. And she says, no, no, ask me now. The question, the answers will remain the same whether you ask me today or tomorrow. That's having your head on straight mm-hmm. after them. You know what I mean? Yeah. She saw her dad bludgeoned. So why was she just so stoic about everything? You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. It could also be argued that she just wanted it figured out and the person that killed her father she wanted that person to be found i guess on the following day the investigation did continue by now the story had appeared in newspapers and the entire town was freaking out in the papers that a guy from smith's drugstore came to the police department and said that lizzie had come in and to buy did i say this earlier about the Mm -hmm. seal skin Mm -hmm. and so they think that maybe she he ends up testifying against her in the inquest saying that maybe she was trying to buy the poison to kill her family. He had read about it in the paper and kind of jumped in and contacted the police. That following Saturday was the day of the funerals for Andrew and Abby Borden. The service was conducted by Reverends Buck and Judd from the Congregational Churches. The burial, however, did not take place. At the grave site, the police informed the ministers that another autopsy would be conducted. This time, the heads of the Bordens were removed from the body, the skin removed, and plaster casts were made of the skulls. And then for some weird reason, this is so creepy, Mr. Borden's head was never returned to his coffin. On August 7th, 
On Sunday morning, Alice Russell observed Lizzie burning a dress by the stove. She told her friend that if I were you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't let anyone see you do that, Lizzie. Like, why are you burning your dress? They're going to think that you're burning the dress with blood on it. Mm-hmm. Because here's the thing. That's what you're saying earlier. Like, why did anybody have to be upstairs with Lizzie? Like, killing Abby? Like, the laughter thing? Mm-hmm. The way these murders were conducted, paint and paint. Blood splattered. Blood splattered everywhere. Whoever did it had to have blood on them. But Lizzie was walking around after Abby was murdered. Lizzie was walking around in front of Bridget and her dad. She wouldn't have had time to clean up Mm -hmm. and change her dress. I mean, more so with Abby, she would have had time to change her dress. But after Andrew was murdered, she wouldn't have time to change her dress. So people... The fact that she was burning a dress. And she didn't give any other reason as to why she was burning. She said it was stained with paint. And she even held up the hem of the dress and said, look, there's paint on this. People are saying that there's two sides of it. It's very suspicious she was burning a dress. And that's just how you discarded of things. They didn't have trash pickup in those days. Mm -hmm. Some people are saying it was suspicious she was burning the dress. But at the time when she did that, there were police stationed at every door and every window of her house because they didn't know at the time whether it was someone out murdering people. Right. And their house had already been attacked, mm-hmm. quote, unquote. So police were watching the house. She did it with windows and doors standing wide open. She did it right in front of the police. Yeah. That if she was afraid that they would stop her or that there was blood on her dress, she would have done it right in front of them. She yeah. would have done it hidden somewhere Mm -hmm. so but here's the other thing too the police investigated the house they searched the closet they had a separate closet where all the dresses were the dresses were huge in those days men were not inclined to be touching women's things right so they would have done sort of a cursory look through the dresses someone had theorized that if you wanted to hide a dress it wouldn't have been that difficult because her dresses were hanging up emma Testified the police, yes, those are all our dresses. But they say that if she had killed Abby wearing a dress that would have been splattered on, right? That she could have easily have taken the dress, hung it on a hanger, and hung another dress over it. So they would have been looking at all the dresses. Yes, all the dresses are there, but the bloodstained dress was underneath another dress. But she would have had blood all over her face arms but she had a lot of time remember she was yeah but she didn't have a lot of time after andrew okay so here's the theory on the dad the theory on the dad is that her her dad came in and took his overcoat he was wearing an overcoat even though it was which everyone said was really weird that he wore an overcoat when it was as hot as it was and it was long black overcoat and it was found rolled up under his neck on the couch people are saying that when he Bridget doesn't know what he did with his coat. He probably would have just laid it over the sofa when he came in. They say that she put it on backwards, covered herself completely with the coat, bludgeoned her dad, and then took it off, rolled it up, and put it underneath him, ran and washed herself, her hands or face, whatever, wasn't covered. But it would have been a lot. The lot, Most of her would have been covered by the overcoat, but her hands and her face and that... But she would have had to been so careful. She wouldn't have been able to get it on her shoes. Mm-hmm. Anyway. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So 
here's the other really tricky, tricky thing, too. She claims the night of the murder, Alice had spent the night with them, and they had taken the pail down to dump it into the water closet. And during this time when, when women were at that time of the month, they kept sort of a separate bucket that they would soak the uh, bloodstained things in. And they're saying that it, men definitely would have stayed away from that right. in those days. They're saying that she may have used that bucket to clean herself too. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that would yeah. have been the, exp- like she chose that time to kill them because she would have had an explanation for, for a, bucket a bloody of bucket. Yeah. yeah. On August 9th, an inquest into the border murders was held in a courtroom over police headquarters before criminal magistrate Josiah Blasdell, district attorney Knowlton questioned Lizzie Borden, Bridget Sullivan, household guest John Morse and others. During her four hours examination, Lizzie grew confused and, contra- and gave contradictory answers. Two days later, the inquest adjourned and police chief Hilliard arrested Lizzie Borden on August 11th, 1892. The next day, Lizzie entered a plea of not guilty to the charges of murder and was transported by rail car to the jail in Taunton, eight miles to the north of Fall River. Why were her answers confusing? I, apparently, um, Dr. Bowen, the mm-hmm. family friend, had given her excessive doses of morphine to keep her calm. During, right, right, right. Yeah, you said For the that. inquest. So the answers and the contradictory answers and the confused answers, like she would answer different ways for basically the same question. She was drugged up. She was drugged up. So this is where I get confused. If someone had purposely planned and methodically planned to murder their own parents, why would you be so jacked up that you had to be drugged? And um, they're saying that immediately following, she was so stoic and so capable and had her head screwed on right, but then suddenly at the inquest, she can't even answer questions. Now, remember, at her inquest, it wasn't because she was a suspect. This was just an inquest. They were asking all kinds of questions. Was Lizzie Borden just a sweet Sunday school teacher, unfairly blamed for her parents' death, or did she brutally and methodically murder her parents and get away with it? Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. Be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode. Until next time, I'm Kat, and remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost. Ghost.